Good morning. Good to see you all. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, excited to uh, get into God's Word this morning as we look at Jesus in the midst of the Feast of Booths in the temple at uh, Jerusalem about a half of a year before he dies. So if you have your Bibles, I would like you to turn with me to John chapter 7. We're going to read this morning's portion, and uh, it will end this particular day in the temple next week uh, during uh, Church Behind the Church. We'll see his last words on the last day of the, the feast. But in the meantime, John chapter 7, verses 25 through 36, I invite you to please stand as we read God's word because all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. John 7, beginning in verse 25, the word of God. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than these which this man has done, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. And let us pray together. Father, we praise you as the God who sent his son. We thank you that your son in like fashion has sent us to the world. Lord, we Turn to you in this world that is lost and dying and out of control and confused. We know that you are on the throne. You are our rock. You do not change. You open what no man can shut and you shut what no man can open. You are sovereign over all. We praise you, Father, for your greatness and your goodness in giving to us salvation through Christ our Lord that in the midst of darkness you have made us light in Christ. We do not take that for granted, and we pray, Lord God, that you would accept our worship this morning, recognizing that uh, we do not approach you based upon deeds which we have done in righteousness. 
But clothed in all of his splendor and righteousness, we approach you boldly, asking that once again, in your kindness, you would make known to us your words, words of eternal life, that we would take of them and they would become part of us and that we would live them as we are intended to do so. And all these things we pray for the sake of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, as I said, we are approaching uh, the end of the feast in John chapter 7, but in the portion that we left last week, Jesus is right in the middle of the week. And uh, like we said last week, I love the, the good speed translation of John 7, 2. It says, but the Jewish camping season was coming. And it, it appears like the Jewish camping season, the American camping season, is maybe coming to a close. It happens about Labor Day, Right. And it's good to see so many people here today. I think we're probably numbering more than what we're supposed to have. And you know what? That's okay. Because camping season is about over, isn't it? It's time, it's time to stop camping out and time to come back. It's time to be amongst God's people and to worship him together. So it's, it's good to see you the, here this morning. The Feast of Booths, as we said last week, was the, the, one of the highlights of the year for the Jews the most joyful of all the feasts. In fact, Zechariah ends his uh, prophecy the, the, in the very last chapter with these words. Um, it says, and, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. In other words, when the kingdom comes, when, when Messiah king comes, all will be right. And then he goes on in verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem, will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and celebrate the Feast of Booths. Zechariah is likening the Feast of Booths to the kingdom era. It's Christmas every day. It's the fulfillment of all things. The Messiah has come. All is right and all is good. And he doesn't choose Passover and he doesn't choose Pentecost or any of the other feasts. It is this feast that he chooses to say, in that day, every day will be the Feast of Booths. It's a wonderful thing. And all the Jews have come to Jerusalem, and Jesus has come at this time. And every day, we'll say more about this next week as well, as he, we have the culminating statement of Jesus on that last day. But they would come every day, all the Jews would gather at the temple, and their left, left hand they had citrus. And that uh, demonstrated and signified uh, the harvest and God's plentiful har harvest. In their right hand... They the priests in a procession, and there were some things that went on. We'll talk more about it next week. But every day, every day of the seven days of the feast, they would walk to the temple with the priests, and they would go into the temple, and the, and, and the festive festivities would begin, and it was, it was the highlight of the year for many of these people. And then Jesus comes, right? He is a proverbial wet blanket, if you will. He kind of throws a damper on things. Everybody's happy. Have you ever been in one of those situations where, you know, it's a family event or uh, maybe a, a work party or something, and everybody's happy, and someone, oh, why did you have to go there? Why did you have to bring that up? And it just puts a damper on everything, and, and everybody is upset. But this is the purpose of the festival, that they would know the Messiah. And they don't know the Messiah. 
And he has to throw a wet blanket on their ignorance and their confusion. And he has to bring light to the situation. Even though it may be painful for the moment, it is necessary that they would understand and it is by his grace and his kindness to them that he throws this wet wet blanket because there is going to be this frenzy that ensues and people are confused and they're uncertain and they're arguing and seeking him out, but it's necessary, necessary. We closed last week with Jesus' words in verse 24 where he said, do not judge according to appearance, but judge according to righteous judgment. Um, People were talking in private, remember, they were saying, well, he's a good man, and others were saying, nah, he's a deceiver. And he knew that, and he began to teach. People put him down, they didn't understand him. And then he, he says very clearly, I am from my father. It's from the one who sent me. He said, and those who are willing to be receptive, they're going to understand that. They're going to know what I'm talking about. He also said his teaching was like none of the other teachers because all the other teachers, they were about inflating themselves, and he was about bringing glory to God the Father, not himself. And though they charged him with being demon-possessed, He skillfully goes through this description of the Sabbath and how he healed on the Sabbath. And his healing on the Sabbath was no more breaking the law than them circumcising babies on the Sabbath. And so after that, he says, you need to pay attention. Don't look at what's on the surface just by appearance's sake that the religious leaders are saying, hey, he broke the Sabbath. No, you need to look under the hood. You need to pay closer attention and you need to judge righteously. And so what happens next is kind of based upon that. I think there are some who are struggling to go, well, I'll take them up on that challenge uh, to look closely, and they're asking some questions, but still confusion reigns. And so what we're going to see in verses 25 through 28 is that there is uncertainty and confusion about the identity of Christ. There was uncertainty and confusion about the identity of Christ while Jesus was on the earth, while Jesus was at the festival, and by the way, he's going to be in Jerusalem for the last time until he dies. He's not going back to Galilee. But there was confusion, and there is confusion today. Nothing has changed in that regard. There is uncertainty and confusion. Verse 25, so he says, Judge righteously, pay attention, don't look at the appearance's sake. And so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, well, Isn't this the man that they want to kill? This is him, right? The expected answer is yes. But it's almost kind of like, what did he do? Um, Really? That's it? And then they say, well, well, look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. So they want to kill him, but he's out in public, and they're not, why aren't they confronting him? Uh, The rulers don't really know that this is the Christ, do they? The expected answer there is no. So the, the rulers seem to be caught flat-footed. Jesus has, uh, there's murmuring and talking about who he is, and he gives this, this teaching that is clear-cut, and some people are kind of being moved that direction. And the people are saying, well, if they think he's a devil, if they think that he needs to, to, to die, why aren't they saying something? Why aren't they, they, they talking to him? Why aren't they seizing him? So they're confused about what's going on. And then they say, however, we know where this man is from, do they? They know that he's son of a carpenter named Joseph. 
from Nazareth in Galilee, but do they really know where he's at? This is part of the irony. And then they say, but whenever the Christ may come, meaning they don't really believe that he has, but whenever he may come, no one knows where he is from. Well, that's not true. The Bible clearly teaches that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem of Judea. In fact, later in the chapter, that's going to come up, and, and so we'll come back to that. But, but all of this screams confusion. They don't know which way is up. They don't know what's going on. They don't know who he is. They, they have some ideas. Some people are saying this, and some people are saying that. But they don't really know what is going on. He has spoken, and his word seems to be obviously true to some of them. He's glorifying the Father and not himself. He's talked about uh, the Sabbath and, and keeping the law, and it's, that seems to be a sound argument. But, but we're perplexed. He's from Galilee. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Confusion. We saw the confusion and the controversy last week. We see the confusion and the controversy this week. And we see that controversy and that confusion is going to continue throughout this chapter into chapter 8 and actually to the rest of the book, the rest of his life. Uncertainty and confusion about who Jesus is. But let me point out something to you. We see what the key issue is. Verse 26 the rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, the Messiah, do they? Verse 27, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he comes from. The Christ, this is the issue. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Is Jesus of Nazareth the Messiah, the Christ? By the, this, is the, this is the first time the word Christ has been used since Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. That's a long time ago, right? It's a long time ago in preaching. <laughs> but even longer chronologically, at least a year and a half. At least a year and a half ago, he was talking to the woman at the well. And this is the last time anyone even used the name Christ. John, um, maybe it, they did, but John specifically in his writing leaves this to this point because this becomes the center of the controversy. Controversy: Who is this man? Is he possibly the Messiah? I'm uncertain. I'm confused. They were. Some are today. So this word, Christ, is used, and this is, this is the, the issue. At the height of the great festival, the question that occupies the day is this. Is Jesus of Nazareth the Messiah? That is the, that is the question that should occupy the day, not only at the great festival, but in our lives and for the, each individual life there as well. Is Jesus of Nazareth the Messiah? We know the answer. Yes, of course. He's answered it for us. He has answered it for ourselves. ourselves. And the lesson for us is this. The lesson for you is this. Your belief about Jesus' identity will determine your eternal destiny and nothing else. Your belief about Jesus' identity will determine your eternal destiny. Your church membership, your church attendance, your faithfulness, your tithing, the good things you do for others, keeping the law, blah, 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 all good things, 
He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. But understanding who Jesus is, you can't get it wrong. There may be even some in this room who have said, you know, yeah, I've heard all the teaching all my life, you know, that Jesus is God, but I don't really, I'm not sure that I really buy that. But I believe he died for my sins. Guess what? You are still in your sin if you do not believe who he is. Not just what he did, but who he is. Islam teaches that he's a prophet. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that he was created. He's Archangel Michael. Um, Latter-day Saints believe that he is a God, separate from the God, God the Father. You cannot believe that and be saved. You cannot believe error and know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You must believe that he is the Son of God the Messiah sent from God who died and rose again, eternal God in human flesh. And anyone who rejects that truth is confused and in error and certainly uncertain about their own eternal destiny. So if you are confused, if you are uncertain, here's what I ask of you, pray. I mean, listen, and maybe you've heard all these things, but... If you're having difficulty coming to that truth, ask God to help you. Ask God to show you, because this is the work of God, to draw you, to open your eyes, to open your heart, to understand the truth of who Jesus is. And so ask him. Please ask him to show you. And like Jesus says, if you are willing, you will understand. If you are willing to believe, God will lead you in that willingness to open up your mind to understand everybody's got an opinion about Jesus. Your opinion doesn't count. The truth is the only thing that matters. So, there's confusion and uncertainty in Jerusalem and in America and in churches and throughout the world about the identity of Jesus Christ. But secondly, in verses 28 to 32, there are then varied reactions to the claims of Christ. There are different and diverse reactions to the words of Jesus Christ. And and we see the words of Jesus Christ all in the book of John and Matthew and Mark and Luke. And we read those words and it is our responsibility to respond to those and to react to them properly the way God wants us to. And there are varied reactions. There were varied reactions on this day in Jerusalem when Jesus was talking And there are various reactions today where we live, in our homes, in our churches, in our nation, in our neighborhoods. So Jesus somewhat responds to this this question, the last question, you know, well, well, this isn't the Christ, is he? We know where he's from, but no one knows where he is from. He says this in verse 28, Then Jesus cried out, Now, normally in the dialogue that we have seen throughout the book of John, and in in all the Gospels, it's, it's, you know, the Pharisees said this, Jesus answered and said this. It's a a typical formula, Jesus answered and said this. This is different. This is way different. Jesus yells. He raises his voice and he cries out in the midst of the temple, 
Um, it's like, uh, you know, we don't do it anymore, unfortunately, but, but God help us to get back to that day when we have a greeting time and, peop- and you all are milling about and shaking hands and hugging one another and there's this din of talk and fellowship and I come up and I have to say, please, could I have your attention? And I raise my voice and it quiets down. That's what happens here. Jesus cries out with a loud voice. This is a public declaration. And notice he uses three words to say it. He cries out, teaching and saying. You better pay attention to what he says, in other words. Three words given for us to pay very close attention to the words of Jesus at this point. He cries out in the temple, teaching. Teaching uh, can uh, include a number of things. Number one, teaching involves proclamation of truth, and he's going to do that. He's going to proclaim the truth. Teaching also involves correcting error, doesn't it? And he's going to correct error in, in, his, in what he proclaims. A third thing that I would say about teaching at this point is that uh, the essence of teaching sometimes is repetition, right? Repetition, repetition, repetition. Shall I say it again? Repetition. The, teaching of, the essence of teaching is oftentimes repetition. So proclaiming truth, dispelling error, and, uh, and repetition, and he's going to do all three. Because all that he says, he's already said before. We looked at it last week. He's already said it. But he cries out in a loud voice, and everybody goes, well, what is going on? Oh, here's the guy from, from Nazareth. There he is. They're talking about different things, and some of them are talking about him. And He's going to speak. He's not just teaching like he was last week, but now he's addressing the entire crowds, and this is what he says. And I want to put the, the verse up on the screen uh, to show you just how this, this, this inversion of the verse. You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. He starts off by saying, um, you both know me, and you know where I'm from. It's a bit of irony here. He's saying one thing that means another. Um, you know me, and you know where I'm from. Okay, you think you know my name is Jesus. You think you know I'm from Nazareth and Galilee. It's kind of like, you think you know where I'm from? You think you know me. You say you know me, but let me correct you. He says, I have not come of myself. We saw that last week. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. Whom you do not know, I know him. You see, that's at the center of these verses. You see the inversion there. You do not know him, I know him. That's the heart of the matter, matter right there that's really going to get people upset. I know him because I am from him and because he sent me. Jesus knows the Father. They don't understand as much as they think they understand. I have not come of myself. And then he says later in the next verse, because I am from him. Jesus is speaking about where he came from. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the essence of God. He was with God. He and God are one. He is of God. No one else can say that. He is speaking of his essence and his deity. But then he says, but he who sent me is true. Um, This is something we haven't talked about, but Jesus uses the word sent twice in in these verses. Two different words. 
And uh, Jesus uses this idea of he sent me, the one who sent me. It, it, is, uh, it, it is shorthand for God. Who's the one who sent him? God, the Father. That's what it means throughout the book of John. In chapter 5, he uses the words, he says this, he sent me seven times. In chapter 5, chapter 6, he uses it five times. Chapter 6, five times. Chapter 7, five times. Chapter 8, five times. He sent me, he sent me, he sent me, he sent me. God sent me. He's making the point over and over again. And when he says it the second time here, he sent me... This particular word, we get the word apostle from it, means one who is sent with a specific mission. So when Jesus says, I am from him and he sent me, my essence is with the Father and my mission is from the Father. He has a mission to complete, coming from the Father. And Jesus uses this word, he is true. And actually, uh, I don't know if you have a different translation, but... um, um, Greek scholars point out the fact that it might be better translated, he is real, this particular word for true. He is real, as in, he really sent me, we would say in popular vernacular today. He really sent me. I've said this before, he sent me, he sent me, he sent me. He really did. He is the real one. But at the heart of it is this, you do not know him. How would that sound to the religious leaders, to the, to the Jews that are there to celebrate their faith in, in, in the Lord? And this guy stands up and says, you don't even know God, but I do. <sighs> How would you feel? You ever been in a situation where you're talking to someone, maybe from a cult or somewhere, and uh, someone says, you don't know the Lord. You don't know him. You are wrong. Just imagine how you would feel, and that's how they felt. They were being put on notice that they are wrong. So his words are very strong. They're very few here, but Jesus is consistent in what he's talking about. Uh, by the way, why do they not know the Father? Why do they not know the one who sent me? Because they do not recognize and believe in the one he sent. You cannot know the Father without knowing the Son. He is the great mediator. There is no other one. The only way to come to the Father is but through him. And they are denying him, and they are saying no to him, and they are disbelieving him, and they are not willing to believe in him, so therefore they don't know the Father in spite of their religiosity and legalism. So there are three reactions to these short but pithy words. First reaction is that some people spontaneously seek to seize him. It's a mob response. Verse 30 says, So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Um, They is kind of indefinite here, but he's talking to the people. Um, I forgot to say this, and I'll say it now. Back in verse 25, he said, some of the people of Jerusalem, there, there are different groups that are here. There are the people of Jerusalem that, that live there, that are part of, the, uh, 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 part of the festival. There are the pilgrims who have come from uh, many countries and many areas that are there. There are the, the, the Jews, the religious leaders that are there. And so it seems that this, at this point when he says, so they were seeking to seize him, it is somewhat indefinite, but it is some of the people that are believe, that are Jewish uh, um, um, pilgrims who are there 
but no man laid his hand on them. This is an emotional response. Ah, you said, I don't know him, and you know him. You don't know him, I know him. And this is an emotional response of mob rule. See that today, don't we? We see that today that people get caught up in mob rule. We see that in our cities. Um, what protests have become riots and so many uh, evil things, and there's violence going on in our streets, and, uh, and, and people are moved by the mob. Don't think it could never happen to you. Because when, when things become emotional and you're in the middle of a bunch of people and everybody has one mindset, they might sway you. And that's true for kids in the classroom. If you get into a discussion in the classroom and everybody's talking about, about religion and they, they say that Christianity is false and everybody gets, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't be surprised at what you're capable of. Or in the break room, adults you will find yourself saying and doing things that you thought you were not capable of because of mob rule. It just brings us and carries us along. So these people, they just spontaneously, a group of them, um, and emotionally they want to seize him and grab him out of anger and, and emotion. But, but notice again what happens. No one could lay hand upon him because his hour had not yet come. We don't know what happens. We don't know whether they actually physically tried to grab him, but God prevented it from happening because his hour had not yet come. Remember the hour of Christ as spoken in the book of John. He's talking about later in the book, later in his life, when he will be rejected, when he will suffer, when he will be crucified, when he will be buried, when he will be be raised from the dead, and when he will be ascended from on high, that is all the hour. The hour in which he returns to his father, having completed the work which he was given to do, having been sent. So God sovereignly protects him. You know what? He does us as well. God will sovereignly protect his own until they fulfill his will. Whatever your, his will is for your life, he will protect you. I remember hearing once as a, as a young Christian, someone saying, um, um, you are indestructible until you do what God has called you to do, something like that. And I thought that was an odd thing to say. But this verse kind of says that, that uh, Jesus, they couldn't do anything to Jesus apart from the sovereign will of God. And that is true for us as well. Uh, what can man do to And God will, in his sovereignty, protect us until we complete his will. And, then he, and guess what? Then we go home. Then we're done. But he will sovereignly protect us. So that first reaction is a somewhat spontaneous but rather emotional reaction that some people have, even today to Jesus, that, yeah, nah, just doesn't get me there, doesn't make me feel good. And so they spontaneously, because of their anger, why would people be angry about Jesus? Sin. I mean, it's, it's fun to talk, not fun, talking to people um, 
about Jesus is one thing, but uh, as soon as you talk, start talking about sin, eh, I mean, he's a good man. You talk about all the, the opinions about wh- who Jesus is, and, and pretty much he's, he's got pretty good press and throughout the world. Yeah, he's, yeah, people, Jesus is all right. But when you start talking about what he actually said, you don't know him. Because you don't know him, you're not going to go to him. You're lost, you're dead because of your sin. That is why people become angry because of their own sin. That's why the necessity of repentance is so important. So some people spontaneously respond. Second of all, the second response is this. Some people thoughtfully believe in him. And this is a personal response for us as well, we hope. Says this in uh, verse 31, but many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, "When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than this, than those which this man has, will he?" They seem to conclude that he's done enough. His miracles are sufficient for us to believe, and many believe in him. Now, some people think that those who are believing him, it's it's kind of superficial, and they're not really saved, and they don't really understand. I don't think there's any reason to to say that at this point. We have seen that previously in the book of John where some did not truly believe in him. But some might think that John is presenting contradictory ideas to us about miracles. They believe on the basis of miracles. But we saw back in chapter 6, Jesus answered the crowd's When he had fed the 5,000, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. You sought the miracle, and you sought what the miracle did for you. But they didn't have the spiritual perception to see what the meaning of the miracle was. What was its purpose? Remember the purpose of the book. John 20, 30 and 31 Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written for what purpose? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I believe John 20, 31 is being... Portrayed in John 7:31, these people are believing on the basis of miracles. So, lesson for us is simply this: Jesus was not a miracle worker who claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah who worked miracles. It's all the difference of uh, understanding why he did the miracles. Jesus performed miracles, not that people would believe he was a miracle worker. That's wrong. But he performed miracles so that people would believe that he is the Messiah. That was the purpose of them. To point people to who he is and his mission and his father. So secondly, you must believe in miracles in order to believe in Jesus. Do you understand that? You have to believe in miracles in order to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you don't believe in miracles, then you don't believe in any of the miracles that he did, and you don't believe that he rose from the dead. But it's the purpose of the miracles. 
What was the purpose of the miracles? They authenticated his true identity, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing in his name, you will have eternal life. And that was the purpose of the miracles then and today. Now, there is a third response to Jesus' short words found in verse 32. The religious leaders willfully seek to arrest him. This is the official response of the nation. You have the crowd's response. You have the personal response. And now you have the official response. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. The Pharisees were part of the Sanhedrin along with the chief priests. There was really only one chief priest, but there were many who were kind of retired, and there was a cadre of them. They were mainly Sadducees, and then there were the elders. But you see, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not get along, oil and water. They opposed one another theologically. They did not like each other, but look at what they do here. The enemy of my enemy becomes my friend. They band together because this guy is hes trying to ups, upstage and upstart the status quo. The institution of Judaism is at stake here with this man. And so we must all bound together. We must bind our, our allegiances together to defeat this man because he might defeat our institution. And that's what they were all about, was protecting the institution of Judaism. Not faith, not truth, not the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the institution of Judaism itself. Jesus claimed to be equal to the Father, and that claim to be equal with the Father did not sit well with them. In fact, uh, everything that he claimed, they believed opposite. If you think you're equal to the Father, you're not. You think you came from, from him, you did not. You think you know him? No, we know him. You're the one who doesn't know him. You think you have the truth? You don't have the truth. We have the truth. Diametrically opposed to one another. And they believe that he is a deceiver leading people astray. In reality, again, more irony. Who is leading people astray? It is the Pharisees. It is the religious leaders of the day who are leading people and making disciples of hell, like Jesus would say when they bring people after themselves. The nation of Israel will reject Jesus as a nation. Individually, they will reject him. The institution of the day will reject him. But some will personally respond as they did. And we can thank God that his grace, always in the midst of this darkness, is is available. It's the same thing today. Some will go with popular opinion in rejecting Jesus. Whole institutions, denominations, Bible colleges, seminaries have in the 20th century denied the deity of Christ. Institutions that historically believed in the, the fundamentals of the faith have denied these things because they became materialistic and miracles therefore can't happen. Therefore, Jesus really couldn't be God. He really couldn't raise from the dead. But he's got some great stories. I mean, that story about the woman of the well, that's a great story, right? And the Good Samaritan, yeah, we love that story. 
But they're all stories pointing to who Jesus is. And that has been denied by many institutions that are in our, uh, in our society today. Denominations, schools, etc. The good news is in the midst of these reactions, there are those who do believe. You have believed. You have responded willingly to that truth. And individually, it has been a personal response for you. But there is a warning at the end for the leaders and for all the people. There is limited opportunity to respond to Christ. We don't have forever. Verse 33, therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. I'm with you a little longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me, for where I am, you cannot come. He is speaking enigmatically. Um, they don't understand what he's saying. He says these words, and they probably cock their head and go, what? What, what are you talking about? A little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. He's talking about his death. He's talking about leaving this earth. He was sent from the Father, and he will return to the Father. In fact, in chapter 17, he, he prays, Lord, restore me to the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And he, what he was looking forward to beyond his own death was being reunited with the Father in glory once again. But he had to undergo this trial. He had to undergo this testing. He had to undergo this suffering, this cup in which he would be rejected. He would suffer for us. He would die for our sins. He would be raised from the dead. Then he would be ascended to on high to be reunited with the Father. And that's what he's talking about. And they're going, what are you talking about? Death for Jesus meant return to the presence of God. But for these people, their time is limited. You will seek me and you will not find me and you can't come. There's a time coming, it's going to be over. The window of opportunity is shrinking. Very interesting. Um, one reader I read this week uh, pointed out that uh, um, John 14 actually gives the reverse message of this, and I think it's brilliant. If you look at John 14.3 and John 7.33 uh, compared to one another, John 7.33 says, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. John 14 says, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. You see the difference? Those who willingly believe, those who have accepted the message, those who know the Son, know the Father, and they, we know where we are going, and we know where he has gone. And the, these Jews are standing around going, oh, where's he going? What's he talking about? He's going to leave? That's exactly what they think. Because the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? But they're thinking, well, look, if he thinks he can escape us, where's he going to go? We know where he's from. We've got our people everywhere. He can go back to Galilee. Yeah, he can go into Judea and Samaria. We know, we know where to find the guy. What's he talking about? So what is he going to do, go to the dispersion 
The dispersion is the, the Jews that have been, uh, uh, have been spread in throughout the Roman Empire. As far east as Babylon. And many of them are Greek-speaking. And then they say, will he even go and teach the Greeks? The Gentiles? Here again is this great irony. Because yes, that is exactly what is going to have happen. He is going to say to his disciples, as I have been sent, so do I send you. And what do they do? They go to the dispersion. They go to these towns where there's a synagogue of the Jews, and that becomes their base operations to reach the entire world and to reach the Gentiles. They don't even have a clue to know that what they're saying is actually going to prophetically come true. It's, it's incredible. And then they, then they say this. Well, what is this statement that he said? You'll seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. For some reason, John includes this, that they repeat Jesus' words exactly as he just said them. And I think the only point is for the reader to understand. This is important. They're missing out. They do not understand. The Pharisees misunderstands what it means. And those who have no spiritual understanding will try in vain to make sense of God's words today too. Those who have no spiritual understanding will always try to make sense of God's words and will always fail because you cannot understand it without his spirit. You cannot understand them unless he has drawn you. You cannot understand his word unless you are willing. You see that he is glorifying the Father, that he is sent from the Father, that he is the Messiah. In short, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is this God? Who is this man? The conclusion for us is this. Don't miss your opportunity. Don't miss your window of opportunity. And most people listening to me will say, well, I already, I already did. I've used the word irony several times, and many point out that John is full of irony. The great irony that I see in this whole festival and this feast is you have all of these people at this great festival who claim a knowledge of God and they do not know him. And the irony is Jesus is trying to bring this nation of faith to faith. They don't have it. They don't know him. Of all the people in the world, these are the chosen ones. They have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. They have the law and the prophets. They have everything given to them. In irony of ironies, God himself standing right before them in the flesh. Yeah, what's he talking about? Who is this guy? I don't believe Could that be true in the church today? Yeah. It's unfortunate but true. And I say that as an experience I had this week. But um, I can tell you that there are believers in every church and throughout churches, you know, our church even, churches in this city, big churches, influential churches, churches uh, throughout our, our land, 
There are people that cannot tell you the gospel. And they believe that they believe, but they do not know him. That's a hard thing to accept, isn't it? Same words from Jesus. You do not know him, but I know him. How can you know him? By knowing him, by knowing Jesus. There are many cultural Christians who have listened to the stories and gone to Sunday school and youth group and and been in small groups and listened to sermons. Whom you ask, tell me what it means to be a Christian. And they say, yeah, believe in Jesus. Believe what? Believe what? Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He died for your sins. He died on the cross. And he was raised on the third day that you might be forgiven. And your salvation is not based upon being here today or watching online or reading a book or volunteering or whatever it may be, but by letting go of your sin and relying upon what this cross represents, the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Son of God, the Christ. That is how we can know the Messiah. And you know what happens? Everybody has a window of opportunity. That's why Jesus said to these guys, it's shrinking. And that happens in our lives, but we might be uh, kind of interested and thinking about the gospel and, and, and receptive to it, but we think, no, I'll put it off till I get married. I'll put it off till I have some kids. I'll put it off until I, till I get done with high school. I want to have some fun first. Whatever. And you know what may happen? Your heart may become hard. Two verses. Hebrews 3.15 Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, is saying this. He says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one, one another after, day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We might become perceptive. We might be thinking about it. We might, uh, you might be a young person and thinking, oh, well, I, I, wait, I have to wait till I'm a teenager. You might be a teenager thinking, I need to wait till I'm an adult. You may be an adult thinking, I need to wait until... But your heart may become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his word, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his words, do not harden your hearts. In 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2, also speaking of the Jews, working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Can someone receive the grace of God in vain? Yes, He was speaking to those who who wanted to believe in the hoopla and and wanted to go along with the crowd, but they did not personally understand the meaning of Messiah. And he's talking to the nation of Israel. From Isaiah, "At at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
He's talking about this day, this age. It's available to us, but we can personalize it to say, don't let that opportunity slip away for you to believe. So Christian, be consistent. Make Jesus known as he was known, because that's what he did throughout this passage, made made the Father known, rather. But if you are confused and uncertain, then believe in him this morning for eternal life. And would you pray with me? We're grateful for your word and the personal power and magnetism of Jesus Christ, his spirit who is in this room, in the hearts of many, and working in the hearts of those who need to believe. And we pray, Father, for those whose hearts may have been hardened or are beginning to be hardened, for any who are confused or uncertain that they would respond to the claims of Christ in the proper way by personally believing in him, taking advantage of the opportunity you've made for them this morning. May they, by virtue of taking the cup this morning and the bread, say in faith, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has worked miracles, the miracle of resurrection. And I confess and repent of my sin and partake of this bread and this cup this morning as my first declaration of fresh faith in him. In his name we pray, amen. Please take the bread and the cup, and we're going to sing. And I want you to be thinking about that. The window of opportunity, who is Jesus? If you are confused, if you are uncertain, and Christian, Are we really making the most of the opportunities that we have to tell others? So let's sing.